keep going. Pointed threats, they bluff with scorn. Suicide remarks are torn from the fool's gold mouthpiece. The hollow horn plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born is busy dying. Welcome back to the Keep Going podcast. He not busy being born is busy dying. On Tuesday, September 12th, just two days ago, my father, Thomas Edward Sisson, passed from the finite game into the infinite game, whatever that might be. His passing was beautiful, challenging. He had many health concerns over the last few years of his life. Spent the last three weeks of his life in a hospital. But he went out with such beauty and with such grace. And I have to say, I was extremely proud of my father for the way that he overcame the challenges and difficulties associated with not knowing what was coming next and not knowing what was coming up. But he really pushed through. And as you'll hear in this episode, where we basically have an homage for mentors and fathers, and then range and typical keep going fashion all over everywhere. We really get down to some of the aspects of running and the opportunities that avail are availed by running, how they can bring deep meaning and bring deep purpose to our lives. My father was so important in my life, obviously, but especially in what's made me as a runner as a coach. We cover a lot of that in this episode, so I'm just going to leave it there and let you discover as we discuss more about my father. So thank you for being on this journey, but keep going. I know we haven't put a podcast episode out in a few weeks, and we'll be rectifying that. We'll be up to our normal shenanigans very soon. But this one's a special one, and this one's a meaningful one. So if you're not ready to confront death or discuss death topics, or if that's triggering for you, you probably want to skip this episode because that's where we go. Anyway, I bring the episode we call Strange Attractors. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed. Techniques of running. <laughs> yeah, we've got a we've got a bevy of topics we can we we can work. No doubt. Um so this week I wanted to um I'm not sure we'll release this episode, but we'll see, right? So mm-hmm. who never who knows? But what I wanted to talk about was just a little bit about, um, about I thought a little bit more since I texted you, is a little bit more about mentors, like thinking about mentors, sure. what mentors are. My dad was my, um, my first and most important mentor in running, and he just passed away two days ago. Um, and he passed away in a really healthy, well, I mean, he was so unhealthy. No one dies healthy, right? But he was, he had been in a hospital for three weeks and it was time and he, and he knew that he had other complications and other things that were coming up that it was time. Um, but, and I don't really want to talk that much about that period, you know, the, the, the passing phase because that's just, um, it's still raw and present and um, deeply 
incredible. I'll probably talk about it a little bit because what can I do? But mostly what I was thinking about in the context of this on my walk this morning, because I was like, oh my God, I'm just throwing out here. Let's talk about dads, right? Mm. Like shit, that could be too much for a podcast, especially if your dad just died, right? So I'm game, like I told you, I'm game for it, but I'm also game for the mentor pivot as well. well I'm, thinking, because, I'm thinking we may end up mixing them, but what I'd mm. like to enter through mentors because I can then talk about my dad as a mentor, right? Yeah. Because then I don't have to deal with all the messy, not necessarily go down the road about all the, the inner daddy issues stuff right mm. that that's still um you know probably not everybody's going to be as interested in on a podcast right whereas maybe the mentor stuff can be more useful but again this may end up not even getting put out because it might just be too much of no we're gonna go own. for it it's gonna be bad to the fucking bone we got this thing. I had, did have somebody say to me today on, on our, my group, the, some of the folks, I think were a little surprised that I was at practice today. I'm like, one of the guys said, um, you know, this whole tough guy thing, you're going to break down at some point. And I'm like, I don't really think I'm being tough, but I'm ready for that too, right? Like I'm ready for that moment when that happens. But like it, it those things are like, that stuff's who knows, you know, death is such an interesting and unusual and, um, it's, it's, it's a very, complicated hmm. situation and, and we're all there. We're all gonna die, you know? And in my family, we've just been really blessed with, um, with mostly only dealing with the older people in our lives passing at appropriate times. And in my dad's case, it's another older, he's only 79, but it's a, it was an appropriate passing for what his life was and where he was. So his wife might not say that, right? His, his, sure. his wife might not feel that way, but I think everybody else in his life from his stepkids to his real, to his, you know, biological kids to, um, all his friends and people who knew him, they were all like, yeah, he was moving. He'd been trying to die for a while in, in, in some way, shape or form. But there's um, a, it's interesting because I've been thinking, the reason I'm saying bring on whatever the topic kind of yields today is is that I have been thinking quite a bit about I have some family members that are also, you know, getting to the point of the departure and it was like you know it's it I've been thinking on a very very deep level about um I never can get the Tibetan book of living and dying out mm. of my head. Like I've never been able to, to get it out of my head. Once I read it, it was like, I, I couldn't go back. And so I have a, a, a sense of wonder about the passing of life and what they would call the Bardos and everything like that. So, but interestingly enough in, in the past, like three weeks, I, I even told my, my wife the other day, Lena, and I was like, I want to re-engineer my entire life. Mm. I'm I'm doing it. I'm starting and I've been trying every day to re-engineer the whole thing including goals and what I'm holding on to and what I don't want to hold on to and things that I need to release and when you said that um because I don't want to risk saying something ridiculously out of touch but what I will say was that um I was very pleased to hear that you said it was a beautiful passing, passing. Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking you know thank you for that message and and I mean it because like when I internalize it that is so important to me right now is that I live a life that I'm not 
finding myself one day holding on to um, the things that maybe we can just say that don't matter. Hmm. Uh, and so here I am thinking about what does matter, you know, um, and success, the goals are, you know, all of the things that I thought I needed to do in this life. I'm kind of having a gut check and thinking, (laughs) I don't think that I need to do those things right now. I think that I probably should get back to the living in the moment part. And I've been thinking, I'm always living about one year in the future in my mind and forgetting that like, like you punch the clock five o'clock and it's like work's done. How do you just reground and just eat when you eat? work when you work, sleep when you sleep, do the thing that you are present doing right now because you can't take it with you at that moment down the road. So I've been 100% just obsessed about this, like just completely obsessed. Like as a business person or as a, what am I doing today? Like how do I release all of these like superficial things and get into grounding myself in the beauty of the reality and the now? And what does that mean? So that's yeah, that's where like, my head's been. You know, the, the and this is in our zeitgeist. Um, death is not. It is still continuously placed outside the realms of um, acceptable conversation, except for when someone in your life passes, and then people are. You, I'm always. I was. In, I've been in shock about the number of people that wanted to relate to me their experience with my dad. Mm-hmm. So there is some level of health around death, um, maybe because so many people have been through it right, who are here, who have been through it, and so they know what that feels like. But in our culture in general, it's like as soon as we go through those phases, like death is not allowed in the room. It's not allowed in the conversation, um, and it's not uh, it's not something we talk about, right? And To, to me, it's fascinating. It fa- it's discouraging. It's saddening. But, but I do think it's in the room in another context, and I think you'll appreciate this because I know you've spent a good bit of time meditating, is I do think that's what you know, insight meditation or mindfulness is really trying to get at. Um, and, and then what we've got going on now in terms of people talking about mindfulness is more like minding my business, right? <laughs> Instead of being present fully, which is the real more pressing um, insight that comes from that meditative experience is to try to um, keep your attention on your present moment so that you can then watch and see what's real and not real. Um, but we're opposed to sort of the, what we call mic mindfulness, which is minding my business, putting my mind on my business. And, and I don't mean just my, my work business, but the things I hold to be valuable and true, which just turns into this like sort of feedback loop of just self-referential, selfish navel gazing holding bullshit. I have this visual of holding everything in so tight so and being like my life is just you know me trying to hold on to these things success or goals or you know whatever it is and try and get there as quick as possible and then hold on to them like I'm gonna not lose them but then like to me that just like I had hit me over the head and I was like that's not 
that's not me. Like I, I can't, I can't keep going that way. I have but, to find a way to release some of it. And it's things. hard yeah. to do that. You know, so one of the experiences I had with my dad in his last week, I hear I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but here we are, we're talking about it. Like you know, like you said, yeah, we yeah. Would. like you said we would. So in the last, I went out to visit him um, two weeks ago with my brother and sister, and it was so beautiful. It was so great to go. Uh, we thought he might pass at that point, so we were out there to try to figure out what we could do and what we needed to do, but he held on for another two weeks. But we were out there for like five days, and near the end of that time, I, I, I realized that my dad had kept saying, I'm ready to die, and I remembered he'd been telling me that for the last three to four years. Like, I'm ready to die, I'm ready to die. But here he was in a hospital for two weeks. Like, are you? Like, are you really ready to die? Because you should have already died. So... I mean, if you if you had been in another place outside of the modern Western allopathic medicine process, you wouldn't be here anymore. Not I'm not arguing that he should have done it some other way, mm. but it's just like this is not and whatever is natural. Okay, I, I'm not trying sure. to talk about that stuff. What I'm mostly saying is talking about my dad's experience, and I and I came to realize for him, and this was such a gift that I got mm -hmm. because I realized that he was full of shit. <laughs> And he was talking out of two sides of his mouth. And anybody that, and all the people who listen to this podcast know I use that term relatively frequently because I feel like so often in our running world, we spend a lot of time being full of shit. And then it really instructive and helpful and useful to go through and see clearly and try to process and try to get to the place to see things clearly. And I'm good at this. Like I'm good at seeing people being full of shit. I'm not always great about effectively and-, and, and But it's not and just running. It's not. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And watching this at the end of life yeah. with my dad. And I had the chance, um, as my brother and sister said, they tried to pull me back. And I, they were very uncomfortable because they know me as a coach. Mm -hmm. And they get mad at me, especially my sister. She's like, quit coaching me, quit coaching me. But I just saw this moment with my dad. And I'm like, dad, like, you're not going to die if you don't start getting ready to die. Like, you're so full of shit. You're talking about it one way, but you're not moving that direction. He's like, it's so much easier for you. It's a lot harder than you think. I'm like, dude, I'm stepping back here and saying, I have no earthly idea how hard it's going to be for me at that time. But as a third party observing the situation and someone, and this is the crux here, watching, knowing how I was raised, my father was a tough dad, like a really tough dad. You could ask anybody that grew up around my family, my dad was hard on us in a really good way, in a loving way, but very hard. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like here at the end, I had the opportunity to, to show him what he taught me. And mm. what I said to him was like, quit being weak sauce. Run like, a beautiful race, man. Finish this motherfucker out. <laughs> let go. Yeah. You've got to let go. And he's like shooting me the finger and yeah. mad at me. And my brother and sister are like, where are you going? But I kept staying with it for a little bit. Yeah. I just want to make, did you hear me? He's like, oh my God, I heard you, motherfucker. I heard you. So, but a couple of days later, he sent me a text and he was like, just letting you know, I heard you. And then mm. about two days later, I was talking to his wife and his wife said, he's taken himself off all the supports, all he's on his oxygen. And then he went another two days um, and I let other people talk to him at that point because I was just like, well, if I don't, I said all I need. And I, when I left, we didn't leave on a bad note. We left on a very good note, much love. We were listening to Dire, dire Straits, mm -hmm. Brothers in Arms. Mm -hmm. We listened to Hall and Oates. We were listening to ACDC. We were we had a little we had a little soundtrack going on in the hospital. Mm -hmm. The hospital the every time any of the nurses came into our hospital room, they're like, yeah. like we wish everybody was with their parent 
in this kind of situation yeah. in the mm -hmm. same way. Like we had, a, it was so wonderful. It was beautiful. But um, I didn't have any last words. But then on Tuesday, this was Tuesday morning, I had just this, you know, I, get, I don't know, you get gut feels. And over the, as I've gotten older, my gut is truer and truer. And so I'm leaning into it and trusting it more and more. And I just left him, I called his phone number, left him a message. said, you may not even be here anymore. You might be gone, but maybe you'll listen to this. I just wanted to say to you how proud I am mm. of you to be my dad and for you to have the courage to finish this thing out the way you, the way I thought was representative of the way you lived. And so I can now lean into my own toughness with other people because I saw my dad pattern that and I could pattern it for him, show him in a way. Right. And I just left that message. And then he called back like 10 minutes later, I'm on the trail walking and he's like, Steve, I'm like what? It's like, I have 400 meters to go. It's just 400 meters to go. It's the bell lap. It's the bell lap. I was just like, I just said, well, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you for doing this. It's like, how does it get any cooler than that? And then I get off the phone with him. We talked for two minutes, three minutes. I get off the phone with him and he's like, um, and then an hour later, his wife calls me and is like, he's gone. And I'm like, oh my God, what a, what? it's so cool. It's so, God. it's so amazing to have those experiences and be like, that's why I said it was a beautiful passing. Shit. Like it was like, it was a beautiful race. And at the end he got that's it. Fucking wild. And then the last thing I said to him, just cause he and I have this ongoing thing, like with, is there another, is there an afterlife? Is there something more mm -hmm. than this? Is there something beyond here? And he's definitely a materialist, scientific materialist, reductionist, worm food, like nothing. Yeah. Consciousness is just, you know, emergent epiphenomenon. It's not a real thing. And I'm kind of like agnostic. I'm like got side where I'm like, well, maybe there's yeah. reincarnation, other things. Maybe there's not, maybe we're worm food. But I said to him, listen, at the end of it all, if there is something after this, come to me because you're going to have to say I was right. <laughs> Tell me that it's right. You know, I don't expect him to, right? But it's like, and that has just turned me, like literally in the last 24 hours, moving towards dream. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the next spiritual path for me. The thing for me to open up is, am I going to be ready for a dream from my dad? Because like, that was the way I would expect it to come, right? Mm. In some kind of a dream mm -hmm. format. So like, I need to get fit. I think he's going to do something like that. I just want to be ready. And then maybe he wants to tell me something. And then I just started doing dream research. And I'm like down in this, I'm down on this bunny trail yeah. and I'm like, oh my God, this is an entire path with heart that doesn't have to be on some kind of spiritual tip, although it is in some sense, but it's not on some kind of religious train. Like I don't have to worry about whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or mm -hmm. new age or whatever else. It's just like a real thing. Anyway, all that just to say that like, what a, what, 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 what a gift to have that with my dad and um and to have somebody you know going back to the mentor thing just to have somebody who um and because the thing that's coming the reason why this is going on in this podcast and not in a conversation between you and i as friends is that this is a running podcast and my dad was my first and most important mentor as a runner and he's still so much of what i do and how i operate he was the one who introduced me to running he was my coach through all of my junior high and high school years where I was incredibly competitive and good. My last year in cross country in high school, I choked at the big meet at the, at the NCAA, I mean, at what, no, at the state championships. And my dad had the courage and the vision to get me another coach that last year. So then my dad would, got to sit into a different role over the last little bit. And then he came to all my cross country meets when I was in college. In fact, all my teammates know him. 
as the guy who came, my dad, who loved their sport. He went and took photos of every NCAA championship we went to. Um, one of my best friends, Alex Mendoza, he is he ran against each he and I competed in high school. We were on the same cross country team at UT. And now Alex photog- is a photographer of mm. track and field. And he reaches out to my dad, was reaching out to my dad in the end. Same him, Alex that came out and took yes, pictures. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, your dad inspired me to do this. He inspired me for all of this. So like, there's oh, so many cool little levels that are operating there. And it's like what mentors, you know, a father as a mentor is an unbelievable gift. And uh, maybe that's what this is. It's just like a short little tip of the hat to my dad and his roles to me, or his roles for me as a person and as an athlete. Um, I think that's the most beautiful thing I've heard in a long time, Steve. I mean, it it reminds me, you know, it's no, it's no mystery that I take the, the sober path, but like it, before that, my dad was actually our hockey coach and I played hockey from about fourth grade maybe in louisiana i know right (laughs) we started like one of the first hockey roller hockey teams in town and we did it at the skate rink and um it actually just kind of kept building and building and building we had a rink and a league and then some investor had this like semi-pro ice hockey team they moved into town it was like we were playing ice hockey and then i started traveling with a team and (laughs) driving two hours away to play on like travel teams and stuff <laughs> and uh he ended up being you know sitting on the bench basically with us like assistant coach kind of until 13 and when he passed away that's when I quit playing hockey but I was going to go play college hockey for sure like I want I'm in my mind like that's what I was going to do I was going to be a pro hockey player and um and it's interesting that uh the the idea of a mentor and and I said like I you know, I was so thrown off equilibrium at that time because I just hung the skates up and then just started playing music and becoming kind of like this. For the next 10 years, I've pretty much found myself like indulging in alcohol and oh, drugs. This is another and, whole topic of conversation I would love to you go You see down. what I'm like, saying? Oh, yeah, for is sure. like the power of a mentor being present is so big. And then after it, if you're not a, if it for better or for worse, there's such massive power in there because my dad was my mentor as well, and he still is, and had to refine that. in when I was 26, when I decided to get a little bit straighter of an arrow, <laughs> you know, I was like, all right, let's do this thing, let's start living, and you know, what's interesting is like I don't have any other archetype of a person than him that I really am kind of modeling myself after truly. And there have been mentors too that have, that that they, they come and they come and go. I've I've done a good job at having mentors come and go and they've all been incredibly special. Um, so there's seems to be these momentous people, whether it be a family, a father, a mother, you know, um, a brother, a sister, because my brother is a big mentor of mine. My sister is a mentor of mine. Like, but they and they and they serve in each different capacities. But it's fascinating to me that how much we owe to people other than ourselves for where we go or where we're pointed. And we think and this goes back to that mindfulness thing. Yeah. And we think we're alone, and we think we're like we think we can do it ourselves. Yeah. 
we, and we're never doing anything ourselves. We're not even operating within our own mental sphere alone. Because as you and I know, our dads are there The question with us. is how much of what we do is influenced by other people, our mentors. I would say- 90% yeah. maybe? And although I would probably put that at about 45% mentors and 45% near enemies. Right? Yeah, Because sure. our near enemies are also the ones that we're trying to beat or get over. Or some of those people, the mentors are near enemies, right? Like they become- when you leave a mentor, sometimes it's, you probably don't, but there are some, there are many people out there whose mentors then become their, who they're competing against, right? So then there's like the, there's the positive side and there's the shadow, the, the other side of it, like the mentor or the, or the person out there you're trying to beat. Um, I think that's also a thing in our heads. Um, Isn't it interesting too, though? It's like, if you try and if, when I tried, this is my therapist hat on, uh, <laughs> You can't say you, you got to say me, uh, I. Uh, when I decided that I had the answers, 13, 14, 15, into 16, I clearly was fucking shit up left and right <laughs> like I did. I wasn't, I wasn't a good pilot like, at all. And it's interesting that like I was left to my own devices and me making my own decisions. It was like, well, you know, give it up. And you get into like a program like... Alcoholics Anonymous or find an outpatient group with a great mentor like I did mm -hmm. and and then they just start telling you shit to do and then all of a sudden magic starts happening and all you you end up going down this like weird majestic road that like you can't explain so you know this is this is sport too I mean like coached uncoached like you know it, whether you're coached or uncoached, you know, don't be so proud to have all the answers. I mean, that's that's one of the things I started writing. Um, started writing uh, what's called the running, uh, the fundamentals of running, mm. and I wanted to come up with a, a code system. And one of them is uh, my favorite is don't be an elitist ass because yeah. that's just a fun one. <laughs> yeah. But and one of them is to you, you know because. Basically, don't be an elitist ass means don't be too proud to think that you know what you're doing. So these are your four agreements. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Basically. It's like, you, you're not going to like this one, but the first one is show up on time. Yeah. I know that you have a value for show up whenever you're ready. And I'm like, yes, I dig that. But I, I like, I, I like, uh, I'm like a sucker to the clock. So, and then. My time is, is, is Cairo's time. So it's like, it's, it's what you might call synchronicity time or. Or serendipity time. Yeah. Like I show up. My my version of time is right when it's needed. <laughs> but the also there's 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 the 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 ass end of this like snake biting its tail is welcome newcomers. Oh yeah. Be a mentor to new people. Yes. Because the power that you have to influence other people is profound. So if you're an elitist ass and you're fucking closed off and you try and get these people in and, and you don't welcome them, you're not warm and kind and welcome, then you're not providing such a beautiful and service that you might not even realize that you can do to somebody. It's actually good for you mm -hmm. to be good for other people. Right. Because especially in a community, because then the community feeds you in your time of need. 
Sometimes it's difficult too to kind of be like, am I the mentor, the mentee? And I don't know that it matters. I think what matters is, as you said, being present and being able to read, being open. And, and you know, that's the thing that you were talking about when you said like you felt like you were like like you were carrying stuff, holding stuff really tight. You know, that's that's constriction. And at, at the end of the day, any place like that where we're constricting, holding in, keeping it for hours is not working in the energy of the universe. It's about staying open. And, you know, especially if you follow, you know, this is a very much the um, Avadriana sort of Tibetan Buddhist path of open awareness and, you know, Dzogchen, they might call it a Mahamudra, but just basically all enlightenment is everything is one and ultimately that oneness is this concept of open like being able to stay open and then therefore it's so open it's like space like if you touch space it's so soft and you can never grasp it mm -hmm. and you can never get it so you can't constrict it like you can't pull it in and you can't own it and you can't hold it and a community is the same way like you just it's the love energy or the positive vibration or the hard work ethos that the group has whatever it is you know that the feel of your wednesday morning a tray you run is different than the feel of your telos thursday morning run and is different from the feel that you might have when you're jumping in the pool at noon with mm -hmm. with your swim group they're all community there's just a the, the flavor is just a little different. It's like, it's always a little different, but there's something there. You can't bottle it. It can't be bottled. And the key is, is like Gilbert, can you infect the rest of the community with it? Like, can you spread joy everywhere? That's the beauty of the gazelles. Gilbert's group is just that joy, like out there, like happening. Anyway, I'm, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting off on a tangent. No, but I, I think, think we've come to, I think we've come to a really good tip of the conversation. Like we started with, mentors and what what is the profound kind of thing that we can leave as runners as you know as humans and to me and you I mean those are equal you know I, I think running is a simulation of a perfect world so why not just practice living in that perfect world I call it a path with heart I yeah. truly think and, it is <laughs> and so the idea is maybe there's a a call to action in there that you can only um, own what you can give away. And, and I'm thinking that, that in order for us to be great students, we have to become great teachers. And for us to become great teachers, we have to become great students. And that's, that is such a beautiful process. And that to me, there's, there's so much in, in running that, that I think that we need to start talking about. I mean, the, one, we talk about running culture a lot, and it's not just owning the stuff. You have to be able to give it away, and there's such a fine line between just going after that marathon time. But if you're not giving, like, for example, let's say you're shooting for a sub three. And you're so, so dead set on getting that sub three that you devalue your 305. And you're kind of down on yourself and you're thinking like, oh, my 305, man, I just got to break that sub three. And all you're thinking about is yourself. Well, there's somebody out there with a 315 that's thinking about it and you could help them get there. 
And that motivation might power the group and the group might power you to get a 255 without even thinking about it. So I think that there's, there's, a, there's a huge transaction in giving things away so that we can become, you can, I was taught that you can only own what you can give away. But the problem is, I, I, want, I just want to say before I say the problem is, sure. I 100% agree with you. More than I totally am in alignment with that. Mm-hmm. But again, again, I'm going to just bring back this theme that we keep bringing back about stealing the culture back or taking it back because this is not part of, um, um, I don't think it's a feature of the dip running culture. I think it's a feature of Western culture in general that we do not operate with from that principle because we're all worried about scarcity and we're all focused on scarcity and yeah. and we are scared of what we might not have. Even if you make six figures, upper six figures, seven figures, they're trying to figure out why are they not worried about what's going on in homelessness? Somebody who makes over a million dollars a year, wouldn't you think that the homeless situation would directly impact them? It does directly impact them, but they don't recognize that because they continue to insulate themselves because they see themselves as scarce. There's a scarce resource. There's somebody out there with 10 million. There's somebody out there with 100 million. There's somebody out there with. Again, this is the image of be closing everything and and holding it tight, holding it tight, holding it tight. And nothing good ever happens from that. It's not a principle of the universe. Well, if you really play the tape all the way, (laughs) you do the way our mentors played it. I just it. watched my dad <laughs> give it. What he had to do at the end was give up, was open up into open awareness, and then it takes care of you. And this is this is something Jesus talked about a lot. So you know, and it's also baked into almost every spirit, religious tradition for sure. There's this element in it. I mean, yeah, there's other constricting. There's other things around religions that are constricting. What we might call spiritual for many people, which is a woo weird word. Um, and I don't understand it. It's something I'm really interested in kind of researching over the next couple of years is what do we even mean by spiritual when we say it? I think we're just kind of not. I think, it means, I think it means, I think that it's difficult for the current culture to be talking about things on a philosophical level. And generally speaking, and this is what I had an interview with, um, you know, a prominent kind of periodical the editor of a you know kind of mm-hmm. situation yesterday and and we were talking about like weight weight of the shoes and i found myself trying to be like the density of the foam is this and this and this and it's actually autoclaved from a supercritical process using <laughs> nitrogen and it comes back down to you know we have to use a preform mold that kind of expands it and then we use a compression mold that it, it was kind of like and the question was like well, what do you think people are going to think about the the fact that it's a little bit heavier than the last shoe? And I said, you know, it took me it took me a second, and I was thinking to myself, um, I, re- I don't, I, I kind of answered like, I don't really care what people think about that. <laughs> awesome. I don't really care because because I this is a shoe for the underdog, and what that means is this is it's the it's a it's a style of thinking. If you're the kind of person that wants to think so singular to where one ounce is going to change the way you feel when you run a race, then go buy something else. But if you want to feel the culture of why you're there and what you're shooting for, then that thing is not going to matter. It's about what happens when you lace up your shoes like you know what you know what i'm saying so it was such an interesting conversation where i i even snapped and i was like okay so we are so thinking about such a narrow 
field, the, the aperture is so tight on, on the conversation that we're not thinking about the fact that, you know, we're just not thinking far outside the box. And I think the magic, the outliers, the way that we become great and not just appropriate is outlier thinking. And I think thinking, considering life, considering death, considering what a goal means and how tight you're holding on to it. It's that craving, um, it's that kind of like desire without a, without attachment idea. It's like we can, we can want to become great, but I think being great is to being open. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? So it's a, it, to, there's such a, there's such a margin of conversation of like esoteric kind of um, bandwidth that's required to have conversations like that. And a lot of people, instead of going there, will just say that's spiritual. It's kind of outside the box. I'm more interested in the black and white stuff. Like, let's go. But the problem is that thinking just like that is is really problematic because it's very secular in nature. And what that means is like it's very of, you know, you're going to have to really think that that stuff matters. And you're going to have to think that that is kind of like a ranking system that's going to keep you alive. And it's not. It's not going to. Well, it, but it, you know, my dad lived his life. He moved his life over the last 25 years of his he moved the last 25 years of his life was rejecting relig, a religious point of view mm-hmm. which was strict fundamentalist Christian that I view I was brought up with then he went into a Buddhist phase a long Buddhist phase and then he came back out a reductive scientific materialist cool yeah. and that's how he ended um, all the all the the different sectors. It usually go the opposite direction that yeah, happens sometimes, yeah. but, but he went that direction. And so we had many fruitful conversations, but the thing that he and I talked about a lot was like this question about what's spiritual, and this is why I'm so interested in it, is I think it has something to do with the unseen. So I think at the root level, what you're talking about um, is that you can't quantify it. It's not a data set, and it sort of defies data setting. A setting date, you know, having data as a metric that you can play with and modify. I, I like to use, the way I like to talk about this sometimes is in, in areas where we know that there's a spiritual element. Um, we know it's true and real, or we, we, we live our lives, every secular person even lives their lives in this space. Let me use the word love. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we, we don't have a way to quantify that in a data set at this point. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't know. There's people who say they can. You know, if you remember Scientology, what's his name? Uh, L. Ron Hubbard had people holding onto these yeah. metal sticks that were like going to read the Galvanite. You know, like maybe there is a way to do that. But at the end of the day, we're, we, we do have um, love. Or let me give you another one that's a little more mundane. Law. It's not seen. We have representatives of the law. There's a policeman is a symbol of the law, but the law is not a thing, but yet it's this power, unbelievable power. And my argument is, okay, the other unseen things that people experience, I don't have psychic ability. I can't, I've had a lot of synchronicities. I've had a lot of unusual things happen. 
And like I said earlier, I'm thinking about dream as a potential way of tapping into this unseen space, unknown space as an open, playing, fun thing. But we do have models here for the unseen that we can play with. And this is really relevant to running because so much of what I'm doing now in my coaching career is trying to get people to effectively give space to the unseen because it's happening. It's what's actually making the shit happen on race day and in training. Their feeling state, the experiences, the emotions, the pain, the relation to pain, as you said, Isn't right it safe relation. To say that if if there wasn't something going on under the hood of the running mind that we would have quit a long time ago. For sure. It like would if, just, it, if it was just as simple as a goal and wake up and do the thing, people would get so bored. <laughs> Why it's, do people gamble? It's Think what's going that. on under the hood. Yes. <laughs> it's what's going on under the hood. Why are all these people standing around in Las I'm Vegas? I'm not here to define it. I'm right. just saying like <laughs> you can't discredit that there is shit going, going on, on. In, in ways that people are thinking about it. So to discredit And some of those might that. eventually be able to follow the data sets. Yeah. You know, they're working hard. At, I mean, I think it's beautiful. But I do think that there are things that are always like, why do we love running? I would say a lot of people love running. I think I heard somebody the other day on like a, on an Instagram short. I'm a big fan of Instagram shorts. (laughs) Um, Is that somebody was like, you know, endurance athletes are good because of like early trauma or something Mm. like that. And it's like, well, well, obviously, like, I mean, like that's such a like, like if you even subscribe to the Freudian psychology, even a little bit, then the reason that we love this sport so much is because it fills like some type of synaptic gap in our neurotransmitters that gives us the dopamine rush that does the things that does all. like if you want to talk about under the hood, just look at the science of the brain. And I mean, if you don't want to talk about what we're thinking and feeling, then I don't know how to talk about why we run in the first place. There you go. So I, that's why I argue that we need to keep an open, we need to at least leave that door open for our own individual relationship to the unseen or what might be spiritual or what might Ooh, be yeah. in, in a way that's effective for each human being in their space. And then that's really helpful. And then that's where some of these other psychological concepts like archetypes and other things like that can come in and help where there's there's models there. You know, an archetype is just a like a like a, like a more a, like a like a congruence of concepts, ideas, or thoughts around something that seems to be the way humans operate. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I like to use Steve Prefontaine because yeah. he's been gone for a long time. He died in like 1974 or something like that, right? Yeah. Like, and so yet high schoolers all over the world, especially the country, are, are totally- He's a mentor. He's an arc, he's a mentor. He's real. Yeah, he's real. He's still real. real momentum. And he's still really right there. As good as any of the supplements that we're taking, like is right there. Yeah, it's it's, it's a big deal. And it's, it's a big deal. So it's like strange and weird yeah. and spiritual. So, and I'm like, like, let's if and but but that's relational to the individual. And if it's related to the individual, then we can each have our own pathway. You know, I got to spend at your wedding a little bit of time talking to your brother yeah. about about NDAs and like near death experience yeah. NDEs, near death experiences and what's going on there. And, you know, there's a side of that that's total data, like lots and lots of great data. There's a lot of great data, and there's more and more interest in that data. Mm-hmm. But then there's another side of it that's just like straight up woo, spirit, mm-hmm. like unseen, unknown. How does that happen? What is the fuck is going on? Yeah. And it's like, 
each person only needs to explore the space that's operate for them. Agreed. And and when I talked to him, he and I were disagreeing. And after that day, I, I went home on my way home that day. And I was like, I had no disagreement with him. We were just talking from the level of our own experience within the level of our own interest. And so his was, I wish I, in that moment, I had been able to be more present and more aware and deepened his experience because it might've drug him a little bit closer to mine. And then we would have had more space to talk. That's, that's the... That's the snake biting its own ass. Kind that's of the that's yeah, this. Yeah. That's this. you're the teacher and it's the Ouroboros. The mentor and the mentee. It's the Ouroboros. It's the, it's cyclical return. What it's eternal return? It keeps one day, back. forgive me if I refer to it as the snake biting its own ass. Like maybe one day <laughs> you can give me a, a really thorough description of why this is significant. I just have this picture in my head and me like a caveman. <laughs> like I'm like oh it's a snake, you know. But it, to me it's like oh clearly it's, it's the it. <laughs> hey man. This is a deep resonant image for me. It's yeah. A deep symbol for me yes i love it it's it in and i think maybe that's because i, I recall it is because you have it on your arm which yes, would make a it's lot a of sense <laughs> so if, if if you've listened this far and you've made it i'm actually really pumped about how this conversation turned out yeah. and here's my question to you is is knowing that there is um some great polarity in the conversation of spirituality or woo or, you know, positive or negative connotations surrounding it in the zeitgeist of the current culture of the sport. Like we get it. We understand it. If we're in the business of stealing the culture back, coach Steve, what do you think are the parameters of us introducing ideas like this into it? Do you have a thought Maybe not a diagnosis, but just a thought, just a, a gut feeling about how these things should be reintroduced. Should they be from the coach's level? Should it be from a, um, you know, maybe from a podcast level like we're doing? Like, should it even be called spiritual? Is there a way that or should we kind of tamper it a little bit? Should we, you know, how do we... How do we kind of roll out the carpet for these kind of esoteric ideas to people who might not be accustomed to hearing them? And what's do you have a feeling on that, or should we just build a build a diehard base and then go from there? I don't. You know, I, this is. Um, I said this to somebody yesterday as I was talking to them. I'm like, this is the direction I'm going as a. I'm this is the direction I'm going in my own life, mm -hmm. um, and the direction I'm going as a coach. Not that I'll stop coaching pursuit. Um, of trying to achieve a goal and sure. whatever else, but that there's another piece of this. You that, cannot downplay the pursuit because there's, and, and I'm really good at it yeah. and I made a living at it and I did it and, and I value it and I think it's important, but I do think that this other element is something that to me seems to be with every single runner I meet, there seems to be this level of depth that they, even if they're in their day-to-day -day life, they're shallow as a Sometimes you got to peel dish. back the layers. Sometimes you just got to get in there and ask them yeah. about other stuff. What's going on when you're running? What Do they talk about, do they suddenly on a long run start talking about their daughter and her troubles and her challenges? So what's happening there? Immediately you've got all the makings for something that could eventually turn into a, a spiritual conversation, which is why here with these strangers, or if you run with those same people over and over again, if it happens with strangers and it, ha it was with, with relative strangers, I don't mean rank strangers, nobody opens up that way with rank strangers, but two distance runners running at four, th at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, they eventually no longer begin to realize and recognize their connection. 
So that's one piece. Like mm-hmm. you get connected. Have you ever met an athlete that hasn't had that type of uh, openness? Uh, there are a few people. These people are primarily um, much more on a spectrum. Like they're sort of on a... Those folks are, and distance running is so data set oriented and mm-hmm. you can control the data that some people stay in that space. But my experience is even those people, if the community is strong enough at the outset, not necessarily, but within, you know, if they're running in a group and they're running in that group for more than six to eight weeks, even the most, even the most um, buttoned up, emotionally calloused um materialist, not focused on those kinds of things will dip into that deeper space somewhere along the way their intention will kind of surface to the top a lot of that will surf will will, they'll go i won't say it will surface to the top i think they'll go down into the depths Mm. because there's something about movement and the altered state of consciousness that happens so these are my answer to you is there's community that's going to do this this is already happening that's a way to, to to talk about it you know, Jesus said, when more than one of you are gathered together in my name, I'm there. So I just take Jesus out of it in my name there and say, in the spirit of running, I'm there. The spirit of the run is there. So I think there's something to say about the spirit of the run that's community related. There's an altered state of consciousness for sure. This is another avenue, especially with the interest these days in psychedelics and where we're going with psychedelics as a society. I mean, you and I have had many psychedelic experiences that were not um, designed um, as um, growth opportunities they yeah. were part none of mine have ever been designed <laughs> yeah. as growth well, luckily luckily i've transitioned in my life because i'm still open to those and i do them occasionally mm-hmm. i haven't done it in a while but i do and I'm, i value um certain process but that's a whole conversation going on in our the culture last right hero now. dose i took was of nicotine gum <laughs> but we Boy, have an entire light you up but even our reductionist materialist model is exploring these avenues for what's going on there right like so yeah mostly to monetize it as we know but but there's that there's a space there and running is definitely an altered state of consciousness within within 15 to 20 minutes you're out there the endocannabinoids have started to work you're definitely high on your own supply there's no question about it it's absolutely data set scientifically anecdotally true true and running is micro dosing and ayahuasca retreat and, and if you go for three to four hours, it's an ayahuasca retreat, right? Yeah, like right. Even even an easy run is a microdose, That's but a, a long run is is a. But it's not psychedelic. We should get really. one of those scientists to come in and read the colors of our brain, do that like scan, yeah. and be like, yes. how are these people responding when yeah. they've run four hours versus one ayahuasca retreat? So I think there's another avenue too, which is just that personal. The story piece, yeah. you know, we talked about this in a couple of other episodes about how important narrative is. And, you know, in the context of what is reality and, you know, more and more, especially with all the different changes that that are being wrought, both by information theory, um, more and more re- reaching into different levels. What is consciousness? What's going on there? All of and it, even quantum mechanics, of which I don't understand because I'm not a physicist, but at least I understand at some base level that says they don't know what's going on. But there seems to be a weird bait and switch thing going on, and it seems to be that it narrative- all gets down to the end of it, and then we get so deep, we're, we're so far with yes. understanding it. I was talking to my brother about this the other day. We're so far at understanding it, but right at the end of that is like a DNA does not equate. Like Correct. right at the end, it's like damn. Right, it doesn't make it so fucking far, but then we don't know. But what do we do to bridge that gap? But we do something to bridge that gap, but it's called narrative. It's called Mm -hmm. story. We story it. So I think there's another piece there. Like there's a narrative storyteller element Mm -hmm. and that's um, on a run. You can be sitting around a campfire that and hit and tap into the power of community and 
and everything and is a web. Is. I'm starting to think mm-hmm. that our conversation is just an atom, and all of these different conversations and ideas are just in the electron field, and we're all circling around a nucleus, and the nucleus, whatever it is, like in in your case, you said it was the word that says like if there's a group, and mm. I, you know, I I think that. I always like to like to bring into the human basic needs, which is social and community, and you know that's just a basic need, and as well, you know, and and so like there's this idea of this nucleus and everything surrounding it, but you have intention, you have, you have, um, you have intention by itself. That I by know, itself like mentor, is so you have amazing a mentor electron, and then an intention intention electron. But it's interesting because the mentors are in fact like they're kind of like. Charge to the so there's a term in quantum mechanics for this. It's called strange attractors. Yeah, and strange. This is it. It's all strange attractors. This is the. I now have the title for this episode. Is strange attractors. Let's do it because that's what all these things are. They're they're it's they're falling where we can't. We're attracted to each other, to ideas, to. Um, to whatever it is that makes us human is is and and we but it's not just human we humans the the attractors are strange because we are so multifaceted and have so many varying interests from you know somebody who's interested the interests of a 2-year-old to the interests of a 102-year-old and their different personality structures and all the things that happen from their narrative and their story and all the things that go down those pathways but my dog is also attracted to very simple not very strange things, although they may seem strange, but you know, like I come around, I mean, I can hear my dog, you know, a half a mile away barking at a squirrel, like just underneath the tree barking at a squirrel. That's a strange attractor. (laughs) It's like, like what are these, like, like, because he's been trained over time to do that particular task, to have that happen, but he doesn't know that. He's, what makes it really strange for us is the fact that we are at play in this grand narrative slash game this infinite game that's playing over and over again and regardless of when i say over and over again i mean in that groundhog day model of we go to sleep we wake up about 12 18 hours depending on who we are and how we roll then we go back to sleep and we wake up and so there's this 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 thing of repeating and then you could take that narrative across lifetimes potentially if people are into that certainly you can do that across epochs and we've got big history now you've got all these other things going on Mm -hmm. and i think you know to me to answer you so we got all off track about your question was are there is there a space for the spiritual or is there a space for these kinds of things and running and i'm saying yes because they're all laying there they're all there but nobody's pulling the threads together and weaving a story that people can connect with and i feel like that seems to be the job that I'm being called to do. And I think in a lot of ways, my dad's passing, um, because I've been sitting on this idea for a good long while and have been feeling, especially over the last two to three months, really scared of being, like you described, that experience of, um, of being open. And it's scary as fuck, dude. Because... What if this grand vision, what if this big idea is just a bunch of bullshit? <laughs> and yeah, I can sit here and say, um, maybe it is and probably it is. But to wake up every morning and devote hours and hours and hours on something that people are going to feel like is bullshit is scary. But I think it's taken my dad's passing and the 
baton kind of coming to me and him saying, to me, it feels like this is what I was supposed to do. And it's taken me to 54 years old and my dad's passing to be, to be willing to see it clearly enough to do it. And I've been seeing it for a long time. It's been 10 years that I've been playing with this, but I haven't done fucking anything about it. Mm. And I've done little things, but I've been scared. So to me, it's like the first thing that we do is we decide for ourselves what scares us and what brings us alive. And we lean into it. So I have this little weird thing. Um, so I did this weird thing yesterday because I'm feeling all weird. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of bibliomancy. Mm-mm. So it's basically, Mancy is, you know, sorcerer word, but it's basically divination. So there's cardomancy, the reading cards like tarot. Mm-hmm. There's um, lots of different kinds. Necromancy is the death, like using death as a way to read the future, talking to dead people to tell what's going on mm-hmm. next. Bibliomancy is using books. And so I just weirdly reached into a sack. I had a book I knew I wanted to do, use, and it's um, Chuegum Trungpa's Shambhala. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read that. Mm-hmm. It's probably the greatest warrior book there is. From, definitely from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective, but he's talking talking about it in a secular way. He's trying to make it secular. And I just love this book. And for some reason it's been resonating with me. Like I had the book in my hand and I went and reached into my little bag of numbers and I pulled two out, put one down, put the other down. The first one was the first number, the second was the second number. So it was seven and five. Mm-hmm. Opened up the book to page 75 of this book. And the word is and then and it is the first, it is a chapter, and it's called the cocoon. And it's about how if you are, if the coward stays in the cocoon, the coward doesn't have the bravery and the courage to step into the story, into the real life, the openness. They're so constricted and they're holding back. And I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly. And now here we're having this conversation. Mm. Too many serendipitous, too many synchronicities. It's like, that's it. So, you know, like the cocoon, you've got, we've got, we've got to break out, but it's so scary because the cocoon is so warm and comfy and Mm. like not, um, no one's going, no one other than my very, very, very closest are going to be disappointed in me. Right. So I can just sit here and be a slacker. You know, my Gen X side is like pretty deep there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's cool to not fucking care. But this, that chapter, the cocoon is like break it, it. You will, you will break out no matter what. So what the fuck are you waiting for? Do I want to wait till I'm 75 or 79? You know, no. Like, it seems less relevant to, to, to weigh the options on if that matters or doesn't matter. It's like, <laughs> it's it, so is, true. it is and it isn't. It, it is right there. Keep going. And I'm not saying that that cardo, that bibliomancy, right? Me grabbing those numbers and putting them down there, all that stuff doesn't really matter if it's really working and the universe is really aligning to give me. I needed something. I knew I needed it. And I used a modus and a modus operandi that I knew I've been told by many traditions works. Yeah. And I tried it and it didn't fucking work. Oh my God, it worked. Worked to the point that if I ignore it now, my soul's in danger. I'm endangered. And now I've announced it onto this podcast. Even more putting myself in the mm-hmm. position. Don't be a fucking coward. So if if in the month of October this new podcast you could doesn't reduce come that out, down, <laughs> you could reduce it down to uh, open or closed. 
Totally. Because time is definitely happening. Like my, I am getting older. I can yes. tell it in my body. 100%. Like, you know, this is a thing. So there you go. I mean, we have a couple constants that we can work with and we can either be open or closed and we can go as far as we want and we can, we can lean into being open and it's seeming mystical and scary and all that stuff and see what happens. It's like that Michael Singer book, uh, surrender experiment, surrender experiment. Yeah, yeah, and there was yeah. maybe another one. My brother yeah. got me mm-hmm. to read the yeah. surrender experiment and it's fascinating. Um, and, or we can just be closed off. And to me, I think it's more dynamic and interesting and beautiful to be open. And just look at nature. Look at what's going on outside. I mean, everything is trying to move that direction anyway, towards aliveness and awakeness. And everything's got the beginning and yes. the end, the mentor and the mentee. Yes. It's like, and that's where another thing is, is a, a lot of, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk of love between you and my brother mm. and like all these folks in my life and we it seems to be a topic that everybody is feeling very compelled to talk about these days which is beautiful it's, is, it makes it's me great happy. right and and so you know one of the one of the things that brought me out of out of like pure atheism <laughs> you know <laughs> speaking about one of those transitions and the thing I'll end on too is that I went to that Vipassana retreat one time and then I realized that I was trying to define love mm. all of these years because I grew up in like going to a Catholic church and it was like, God is love. And like, what does this mean? Like, I, I don't know what love is and I don't know what God is. And like, how do you like, it's not like one plus one equals two. Like it doesn't, it, I can never figure out. I was like, this is gibberish. Love doesn't compute. <laughs> and and then I was thinking like I was trying to define this uh, this thing the the one of those parts and I kept trying to be like everybody seems to want to define God and I wasn't interested in that I was like then I came out of the apostna trying to define love and by that definition it was more like balance and circularity mm. and you know and in peace and not not bringing too much uh, disturbance into somebody else's equilibrium and all that stuff. And I was like, wait a second. If love is the absence of being closed or the absence of being too open or the absence of uh, disturbance or harm, uh, then perhaps love is balance mm. and, you know, beginnings and ends. And then if, God equals love and love equals balance, beginnings and ends and a journey and the whole thing. God is just balance. And it's like, oh my God, life is the craziest shit in the world. And here we are spending half of our time running and doing these races and setting these goals. And it's like, if we don't think that that matters, if we're partitioning our time, if we don't tip our hat to the endurance gods and whatever they provide it's like come on with it like it well even if you just want such a big idea and even if you just want to go down the road of spirituality or religion like or that that psychology is our new religion which i think is not a it's 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 gonna work especially those of us who well it is if you look at it from an egolessness kind of you you know perspective Mm -hmm. and how that can kind of muddy the waters a little bit right on what might be considered the <laughs> truths. So I don't know. 
But I do think that the psychological models, the psychological models are what we're using as answers for the unseen, right? So we're using them because we don't know what else to do with it. And they don't, we don't we're done with the gods and we're done mm-hmm. with, um, you know, fairies and, and we're done with, you know, in some way synchronicity, but yet it keeps crashing. Yeah. The gods keep crashing on, on us. And I think as runners, what you're doing there, what I'm, what I think, what I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking runners to do is to just be open to the unseen and work with it because on in the rest of their life, they're going to have a harder time working with the unseen unless things really crash in like a death or trauma or some kind of really horrible thing because that's when we kind of reach for that stuff. But in running, it, you have to, you can, it's right there. It's like a little microcosm. It's a little, a little life form. Like that one workout's a lifetime in a sense. It's like a mini miniature version of it. And what's going on there is a lot of uns- dealing with feeling states and dealing with not knowing and not sure what the right choice is and yeah. how do I manage this and what do I do next? Um, um, or how do I extend this forever? <laughs> you know, when you're having mm-hmm. those great moments. Um, and I think just exploring that and just saying what's going on in me What's going on in humans that this activity brings this alive? And, you know, I'm not saying running special. I believe it's got a special attribute, but I think it doesn't really, that doesn't matter when you're talking. it offers a tool with, set that's extremely unique. It does, but it doesn't change the fact that the people are running are the only ones investigating it. Because right. we're not, those boxers are not that's investigating this. That's definitely true. Right. We're so not we're just, the only, well, yeah. Yeah, we just stay in the space of just runners and just say, well, then explore it. I bet you could find it in curling. I bet you could. I bet some you crazy could. shit. Yeah, know. You know what I mean? That one talk about balance. You want to talk exactly. <laughs> that's a Zen lifestyle right there. Like <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite books is Herigl's the 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 Zen of Archery, right? Like yeah. that book. It's like written in the 50s or 40s or something like that and it's about this balance, about both being completely engaged in attention and then completely open in awareness. And then letting happen what happens. Because if you want to hit the bullseye, you're less likely to hit the bullseye than if you just let it happen. But it takes years and years of wanting to hit the bullseye mm. before it just happens. Fucking crazy. Yeah. Like, Come so with we need a skill set. And runners are working on that skill set every day. And it's a safe place to explore this stuff. I think so. You know, that's my view. It's a safe place to explore emotions. It's a safe way to explore relationship to other people. A great way to to explore what, what relation is to our own goals, our own intentions, how we set goals. This is why I like to use the term intention. Like I'm really bringing mind manifestation, like the, like magical principle, but it's part of everything is intending. And, mm-hmm. and that it, cut, touching base with that doesn't have to be mystical. It can only, it can be just it has to start somewhere. The circle has to start somewhere and it starts with an intention. But if you lean into that, it seems to work more it's, it seems to make you more luck prone if you work with your intentions. You seem to get the thing you're intending for much more consistently when you recognize it as an intention than when you just let it happen. And I see so many runners, pursuers, going for race day, not really setting an intention. The intention is already preset like three two fifty nine fifty nine. instead of being like, why do you want two fifty nine fifty nine? Mm-hmm. Why? What is that going to mean? What's the feeling state you want to uh, be in when you cross that finish line? Because that's really what you want. Because curiosity could bring you way faster. Yeah. There we go. And and, and I, what I've found watching people train consistently is that curiosity keeps them more open. So they actually get fitter. 
because mm-hmm. I'm not constraining it. So anyway, you you see what I'm trying to argue is saying, curiosity is another electron. Yes, it's one of these are strange attractors. It, yeah. it will it will bring it will bring things in. Come sure. on with it. I know we should probably end there, right? Like I'm down with it. I think we did it justice. <laughs> I think so I too. think that we did a big full circle. I think we did a circle and many other circles I think was, around it, the circle. This was one of the, you know, I I trying to navigate such a great dynamic conversation was a lot of fun today. So mm. I appreciate anybody who who. Got to the end with us. Yeah, for sure. And and um and thank you for being open to this because it was healing. Of course, for me. me. It was healing. I really, really appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners, man. You guys have been um when you get this, uh, I have been holding out on you. I have multiple episodes that have not posted because I've had a lot of things going on. Quite a bit going on. <laughs> but we're but this one will probably come out first and then the others will follow because cool. it's this will probably come out today or tomorrow. I've got a little window of time I'd like this to get out there to the world as an homage, homage to Thomas Edward Sisson, my dad, and uh all that he meant to me and all the other runners that he came into contact with were incredibly positively affected by his presence he changed lives through running um because running changed his life he went from a poor a really really poor guy on the streets to getting a college education and then getting and moving on to other things in life because he sport helped them through this sport helped them through mm-hmm. so tom godspeed <laughs>